podcast hosted today by Brandon and me Lauren. Today's episode is a particularly exciting one. We've interviewed our first MP. We were lucky enough to be joined by Clive Lewis, Labour MP for Norwich South, as well as some of you, our listeners, who asked Clive some great questions. We're always looking for suggestions on who to invite onto the show, so if you do have any ideas, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us on Twitter or email us. We'll put our details in the description and remind you at the end of the show. Without further ado, here's our interview with Clive. So we're here with Clive. Thank you for joining us. Would you, our panellists, like to introduce yourselves? Because the listeners might not be familiar with you. Hi, I'm Brandon. Hi, Brandon. And I'm Sean. Nice to meet Sean. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to get right into it. So you're Vice Chair of the Cross-Party Inquiry into the Government's response to COVID. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that and how you think the COVID crisis has been handled so far? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, and that's what I like about Wingers, straight in at the jugular. <laughs> oh, we like that, we like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a vice chair of a, an APPG, which is an all-party parliamentary group, and there are lots of them. And this one is on COVID-19. And obviously, I'm someone who thinks that the government does need to have a public inquiry. But the problem with public inquiries is that they can take years i mean look at grenfell and often there i think people i think the polite term is a stitch up uh kind of establishment stitch up which comes to some conclusions long after the ministers and civil servants and others who took those decisions uh, rightly or wrongly have long gone on or, or moved on from political office or the political office that they held at the time so what we're doing is we've come together with march for change and we are going to bring together experts medical uh, medical experts scientists people who lost uh, families in COVID-19, people from local government, and basically begin a very quick and as detailed as possible investigation into what went wrong uh, with the government's response to COVID-19. And it's not, I'm really clear, this isn't just about kicking the government as enjoyable as that is as an opposition MP. And I think that it's a, it's a target rich environment for sure, given the fact that you know, Germany with a population of 85 million people has 9,000 COVID deaths. The UK, 64 million, 45,000 COVID-19 deaths the last time I looked. Uh, and uh, I think that tells you a lot about how this government responded to the pandemic. So we want to get to the bottom of that. And I think the last thing to say on it really is, you know, we should not be scared as a kind of mature democracy in looking at what we got right, but also what we got wrong and working out how we can make sure that that doesn't happen again. You know, this is the first perhaps systemic shock of the 21st century. We know because of the ecological and climate crisis that is coming our way, it won't be the last. In fact, this disease, according to the scientists, is probably related to the climate crisis. So it's imperative that we work out what we got right, what we got wrong, and how we uh, have a better response next time round. And there will be a next time round, that's for sure. I think that is a bit of a consensus on the left that the, the government hasn't handled the crisis as well as it, it definitely could have done. Do you think that the opposition, your scrutiny of the government, has also been up to scratch? Do you think Keir's held the government to account well 
in his new position as the Labour Party leader? Yeah, I think um, it's, 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 look, first of all, it's really difficult when you come in. I mean, let's not forget when, you know, Keir made his acceptance speech literally in his bedroom. It was the day after Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, had been admitted to intensive care. I mean, it, it's always going to be a tough gig. Uh, coming in as not leader off the back of that and in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, the other thing to mention is that wherever you sit in the in the, you know, the political spectrum, the reality is uh, both John McDonald and Jeremy Corbyn also at the beginning of the crisis developed a tone which was as constructive as possible, but which raised questions and was critical where necessary. It wasn't an attacky uh, approach to opposition. I think they understood that the government was stepping up. It was unparalleled. No one would have ever predicted that this conservative government under Boris Johnson, a kind of neo-Thatcherite, neoliberal administration, was going to be part of one of the biggest you know, fiscal injections into, into the UK economy in living history. Um, no one foresaw that. And as that began to unfold, the Labour Party and the Labour leadership back then under the last administration were constructive and engaged and then pointed out where things weren't working. And that's pretty much where Keir and the team picked up. And, you know, they have had to kind of build an administration via Zoom, via telephone calls, via conference calls, which can never be easy, uh, deal with leaked documents, deal with the anti-Semitism inquiry, deal with picking a shadow cabinet, all of that, and hold the government to account. Well, I think they've done okay. I think there is some frustration at times that's, that they were somewhat slow when the sheer scale of what the government has been failing on, there's been, I think, sometimes a sense that you're not getting stuck in enough and putting the boot in. But they obviously have their focus group. They obviously have uh, a sense of direction, which is, well, we don't think it's that time yet. We need to let the public see what's happened. But there's a fine line between the public acknowledging that the government have got things wrong and then people thinking, well, if the opposition aren't kind of hammering it home, then maybe it is okay. And I think the fear of many is that actually, you know, people might start thinking, oh, you know, I'm okay, 44,000 dead. Well, none of my family and friends that I know really have suffered that much we're okay. Well, that's not the point. And it certainly shouldn't be how we, you know, the basis on which we conduct ourselves. So I think, you know, if we're giving marks out of 10, I don't normally like giving marks out of 10, I'd say a kind of six to a seven. I think the reason where they drop most points is on the issue of the paradigm shift that COVID-19, the potential for that, that it represents. That this is a game changer. It has the potential to be a game changer. I think there's consensus on that. You speak to businesses, who many of whom are not natural friends and bedfellows of the Labour Party, and they will say, look, we don't want to really make investments and let it, you know, only to find in six months' time there's another spike, another wave, or there's another kind of systemic shock that we're going to have to then reinvest again. We want to get it right this time. We want to put our business, we want to see the economy put on a sustainable footing, and we want to, make, we want to see the government lead on that. And... It's really important. Look, no one's expecting the Labour Party to come out with oodles of policy, that much policy at all. But what I think we do need to see is like understand that there has been a public perception and a public shift of perception about what is possible. This amount of spending, we were told there wasn't enough money uh, in the in the bank. The, the magic money tree was but only had a billion pound enough for for the uh, Ulster, for the for the Ulster Unionists, basically. Um, now we find there's 350 billion. So I think people are realizing there is there are alternatives, and I think it's important that Labour embrace that and run with it. And I think that's where we've been a little bit weak. But one, you know, couple of issues. You know, UBI. You know, when UBI came up, the campaign for UBI has kind of cropped up. 
the response was now isn't the time for reform of welfare. Well, I would, I would beg to differ. Um, I'm not on the front bench, I can say that. I would say now is very, very much the time to start thinking and articulating. We're not going to necessarily endorse UBI, but the principles behind it in terms of a radical reform and a change, putting us on a sustainable footing as an economy, reducing consumption, uh, building in fairness, these are things that we should be shouting and jumping up and down about. And I, and I think that, that we've been a bit timid on that front. So you mentioned one of the things that you mentioned uh, was Keir Starmer's leadership. And it's another thing that you mentioned on Politics Live. Uh, one of the things that you said was that Keirism needs to be defined still. So how do you think that he can define his sense of Keirism? You mentioned welfare and changing the way that welfare works. But are there any other ways that you think he can define his leadership and be and get his name down in the history books really as a leader well yes there there are and i think i'm not sure if putting down his principles and values will necessarily get him into the history books winning elections will get him into the history books i mean he's in the history books already of course but i think you know in terms of a direction for the project i mean i think one of the things about corbynism if you want to say that is that you kind of in many ways people people pretty much knew what Jeremy stood for and it became pretty clear pretty quickly where they were heading and the direction they were heading. And one of the, one of the key things that was quite clear, that became quite clear, was that it was in favour of a transformative approach to the economy. Uh, and um, I think that's something um, that we would like, that I would like to see come from Keir. And I think there's a fight at the moment at, inside the party and inside the front, on the front bench of the cabinet, which is, do we have uh, an opposition which is going to manage the status quo uh, operate where the public are now, where the Tory swing voters are now, where the kind of Labour red wall seats are now? Or are we going to lead uh, public opinion, building alliances with other parties, other opposition parties, civil society, NGOs, trade unions and others to begin to build a consensus for change? That's where I, what I want to know. And I think that's where Keir can begin to articulate. Is he for managing, I think, decline and status quo? Or is he for bringing people along with him on a big project to renew our democracy, to put our economy on a sustainable footing, um, to reform our welfare system, our welfare state, uh, put that on a kind of 21st century footing. But also more critically for me, is he prepared to, um, and is the party going to head in the direction where it acknowledges the structural, you know, the structural issues that confront this country and the, and, and the world? And what I mean by that, one of the big ones at the moment is racism, you know? Capitalism was founded on slavery, colonialism, and genocide. That's the reality. So any, any economic system based on three pretty nasty uh, issues like that is going to have some, some pretty deep and nasty structural issues. And just because empire is behind us, we now live in a neo-colonialist period, I think, where the financial uh, and economic and regulatory systems in place are basically there to maintain um, the kind of supremacy of white Western countries. And if you accept that and acknowledge that, then you need to also be prepared to speak up and talk about and change that. That's more difficult because I think you're then entering into a cultural territory, which we have to enter into because the cultural war was in many ways started 400 years ago. We can't get away from it. That's something that Corbynism shied away from. I think they went from a, from a very purely economistic uh, uh, approach. I think what Keirism is going to have to do is, you know, the ground on, the, on economics it's becoming increasingly narrow because of the Tories. I mean, they're even talking about nationalizing rail. I mean, the Tories are gobbling up our policies, the last Labour uh, administration's policies, and they will continue to do that. So, you know, I think we have to be transformative. The Tories aren't. And I think we also have to be able to 
make headway into this issue of culture. And I think we can talk about Black Lives Matter and, and those issues, but we can't shy away from them. And that's a, another area where we have to be able to really define what it is we stand for and where we want to head. Thank you. I'm just going to cut into Sean now because he's got a question I think he wants to ask. You want to go ahead, Sean? Yeah. Hi, Clive. Hi, um, you make a very good point on the need for radical economic reform in the way that we are going. And I think from personal perspective, it seems like Keir is taking a rather pragmatic approach to how he's trying to reach out to the general public. So the good thing about him is that he shows his evidence and he shows where the Tories are going wrong. Hmm. But sometimes, in, in some ways, he seems to, I don't know whether appease is the right word, but sort of let things slide to try and push on the more important things. Like, for example, I'm currently on the shielding register and they, the Tories initially said that they'd open things up for the extremely vulnerable individuals once they reached COVID alert level one. And while we were still like falling between level three and level four, they decided to open things up. And so the, the little things, the Tories are still sort of left going through. And I'm wondering whether, do you think this approach of letting the smaller things slide to approach on the focus on the bigger things, is that our way to push forward the more radical things Hmm. while accepting some of the smaller things. Do you think that's a good approach? It's a really good question. And you know, look, the first thing I'll say is, you know, to your, to your fellow whingers uh, and listeners out there, is it's easy to armchair quarterback. You know? And by that, I mean, you know, sit here in the comfort of my kitchen you know, and the ability of hindsight after something's happened to say, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. And, you know, there's, there's always going to be an element of that in any situation where you're passing comment on what others are doing. So we can't get away from that. And I'm acutely aware that it's a lot easier from where I'm sat to be talking about what we should be doing than actually being sat in the hot seat itself, which is where Kira is trying to do what he's doing, trying to, to basically spin lots of plates at the same time, you know, to build an electoral coalition that can, that can you know, overturn an 80-seat Tory majority. I mean, it's, it's almost unheard of. And that's not going to be easy. So that's the first thing. I want to put that, that down before I kind of then kind of engage in anything, anything further. The second, the second point I would make is you, one of the things about, you know, some of the small things slide, some of the other issues they confront, some go. Some, I think what the, the problem for me, and I think this is, this, is, this is why I think it's happening, is that if you have, and this isn't to be uh, critical for its own sake, but if you don't have a kind of strategic framework and narrative about what it is, an, an analysis of what's going wrong, what needs to happen and where you want to get to and how you're going to get there. If you don't have that, those components, then it, it means that you, in many ways, you don't have the politics to be able to decipher what the government are doing and why. If you have an understanding of what their objectives are, and it is difficult because they are shapeshifters, political shapeshifters, but if you have an overall working understanding of what it is they're trying to achieve, what it is they're trying to do, but also importantly, what it is you're trying to achieve and what it is you're trying to do, you can then feed in problems that arise. So the government make a decision on shielding and they do this and you feed it in. And what should come out the other end is based on your values, based on where you want to head and where you want to go and how you want to get there. What should come out is, you know, a, a kind of tactical and strategic kind of printout, which says, well, that's why they're doing it. 
and our response needs to be this. Now, sometimes you let things go. So, for example, I would say that the reason the government have, have been so um, lackadaisical with a lack of clarity on so many issues around safeguarding uh, and shielding and other issues is because, one, they, base the, they put the economy before everything. You know, Hannah Arendt has written about this. It's the kind of a stepping stone to totalitarianism. The economy is everything. You just become another number within it. If you listen to the Ian Duncan Smith and some of the people in the Tory party, they don't give a damn. Toby Young and others, they don't give a damn about care homes and older people or people who are vulnerable. They never have and they never will. For them, the economy is everything. It is preeminent. And then that begins to make sense about some of the decisions that they're making or not making, and the fact, the fact that there isn't clarity because actually they want the responsibility and the owners to be on the public and not the government. So if there is another spike or if something does go wrong, they can say, well, actually, we said this. And you can look at the documentation and it'll be, but it's really unclear. Well, we did mean that. That's what we meant. And, and that's the impression I get from what's happening. So if you have that understanding of why they are like they are, then you're going to be better able to work out, well, what's our response to that? And why would we put that response down? Because we want to head in this direction. So I think when you have that kind of understanding of where you're going at a, in a kind of strategic direction, it kind of opens up um, a series of positions that you can take. And I think it will, the party will find it far easier. To me, if you don't have a direction of travel, you're going you're gonna to struggle in responding to what the government is doing. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And what you just said about them not caring about people. I'm doing a lot of academic work on social murder at the moment and Grenfell Tower as social murder. So for me, it's, it's all kind of slotting into place. You're totally right about that. Just moving on to the next question. I think we'd all agree that there's quite a culture of tribalism in the Labour Party, <laughs> not just within the party, but with how we interact with other parties um, and their members. You do a lot of work cross party. So how can we ensure that our party is outward facing and, and why do we need to do that? So the, there are two reasons for this. The, the, the first is the sheer electoral mechanics. <laughs> the first party post system. The Labour Party is hooked on second place. You know, in the last century, there have been 26 general elections. We've won eight of them. That's not, <laughs> those, aren't good, those aren't good stats by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, we are hooked on second place on the, uh, on the embellishments of second place of being, an op of being the official opposition. We look over at the Liberal Democrats and the Greens. They're not even on the podium. Well, you know, from that perspective, being in second place more often than not, is better than not even being on the podium. So that's where we find ourselves. So, you know, it, you know the first thing is we have a, you know, an electoral system which is stacked against the Labour Party and other opposition parties in favour of the Conservatives. So the first thing is, I think, is to kind of level that playing field and repair our democracy, um, bring in a sense of proportional representation. And that in itself, I think, will begin to change in part the culture of politics in this country. It won't be a panacea, it won't be a silver bullet, but it, I think it can begin to allow for grown-up politics. And the, the, uh, the story I always tell is of, uh, I was at a Labour Party conference back in 2018, and I was sat next to someone called Ana Gomez, who was a, a former Portuguese MEP. And she was sat next to me, and we were waiting to go on to one of the talks that we were doing, and she got a text through from her friends in Spain. She was, oh, great. The Spanish socialists are on course for winning the, you know, the, the, the Spanish general election. And they, it looks like they could win outright. And then I was like, oh, it's great news. And then she went quiet, and she went, no, I don't want them to win outright. And I went, pardon? She went, no. She says, if they win outright, they'll be, they'll, the hubris will creep in, they'll become arrogant, and they'll impose their will. If they're the biggest party and they come close to winning, 
then they're going to have to build alliances with other left groups, other left and environmentalist groups. And that will make for better politics because they won't be dictating, they'll be negotiating. And that is a better. And I was standing, <laughs> this is completely alien to UK politics, you know, about collaboration, about negotiation, about. And I think that's one of the things that PR can enhance. We just introduced STV into um, CLP elections. You see, I think that's a great thing. I wrote an article in Labour List supportive of that because I think it can help change our culture, moving away from a kind of winner-takes-all kind of situation to one where you have to work with others. You know, look, I will work with anyone who is prepared to erode the power of capital. You know, this is one of the key things. If you're prepared to erode... Some people want to overthrow capitalism. I'm probably one of those people, and there are others in the party who would like to see capitalism come to an end. Um, but there are lots of other people in other political traditions who consider themselves as progressives who want to erode the power of capital. If you're prepared to take some steps forward, given we're on the precipice, ecologically, politically, the rise of fascism, then surely working together to take some steps forward in the right direction is the right thing to do. When you part company, you part company, but let's take, we're so far on the back foot, let's take some decisions together um, and some steps together to try to achieve some objectives. So yeah, I do believe in uh, working together. I think collaboration beats competition. And I think that the kind of the tribalism in our party, uh, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe it was the right thing, given the political system and the, and the kind of the, the social structures within our, our society, but things have moved on. I know I look at younger people now, many of them aren't as tribal politically. You know, many of them will say, you know, well, I'm in the Labour Party, but I think Caroline Lucas is a great MP. Or, and actually, I don't think Leila Moran's that bad. You know, yes, she's a, you know, I think there's, you know, I think there's a, there's a chance you don't have to sell your party out. You don't have to, you want everyone to see a Labour government. We all want to see a Labour majority government. But the reality is, given the uphill uh, monumental struggle we face, given an electoral system that's stacked against us, given a media that's against us, given all that's stacked against us, Let's try and give ourselves the best possible chance to get over the line, get the Tories out and bring in some kind of renewal to our democracy and then see where we go from there. OK, so uh, one of the things that Kira's mentioned before is how we'd go about placing the House of Lords, how we'd go about reforming the House of Lords. And he's mentioned having an elected body, potentially of representatives from local mm. and regional government. Um, that, that's at least retold a virtual local government association conference. Um, I think, Ardil, you've got, you've got a question about this. Hi, Clive. So during your leadership campaign, you mentioned making changes to the House of Lords, and I found that quite interesting. So I wanted to ask you what you think is the best way to reform the House of Lords to become a more democratic body accountable to the people, whilst retaining the positives of the Lords, such as better scrutiny of legislation than we see in the Commons with elected politicians. First thing to say is, you know, whatever my views are of parliamentary reform. One of the ways forward that I'm a big advocate of is a constitutional convention. Um, and it's something I've been asking, you know, kind of pleading with the leadership to kind of engage with, which is, you know, look, there is a, you know, post-Brexit, there is going to be a crisis. There is a crisis of the United Kingdom. Um, if Scotland, you know, I don't want to see a, Catalan a Catalonian situation where if Scotland, you know, after the Hollywood elections next year, in which the SNP are likely to come, you know, by far and away be the biggest party. Labour will be lucky to be in third place, if we're, if we're being brutally honest. And that's partly dependent on the position that we adopt in terms of a second referendum uh, for Scottish independence and in terms of do we have actually a real policy for federalism, etc, etc. I would like to see a constitutional convention for a number of reasons we can come on to later. But within that, you can look at the whole constitutional settlement. And it's not just MPs dictating to the country that this is what 
our 21st century democracy is going to look like. It's actually people from all walks of life, from civil society, from trade unions, members, everyone coming together, different political parties, the SNP, obviously, you know, in the Scottish independence would need to be on the table in that constitutional convention for them to want to be a part of it. I think there's a good opportunity, a good chance that we would win that debate inside a constitutional convention for them to stay in part of a kind of um, Devo Max uh, solution. But nonetheless, constitutional convention means that it's not uh, politicians dictating necessarily what the future is. Within that context, though, of the House of Lords, what do I think? You know, well, look, one of the problems of having um, a second elected chamber down in London is, is, is the issue of, uh, I guess, seniority. And if you have, for example, if there is a, a Labour MP in Parliament and then a Labour or even a Conservative uh, member elected into the second chamber, who has political priority? You know, you have this second chamber. Who? And I don't think that's been properly kind of thought through. But it seems to me to be kind of a limited exercise of the imagination to simply want to replace, you know, the House of Lords with another London-centric southeastern body down there. You know, why not have be more be more radical and say, well, let's keep some structure of Parliament down there in London, but then let's think about giving real power to English region, to, to, uh, to local communities? How do you begin to disseminate power? I don't think it's necessarily about just handing power to mayors or just handing power to uh, local authorities. I think there could be a far deeper kind of, a far deeper uh, systemic change to how uh, local government works and how local democracy works. But I think we kind of get caught up in thinking, all you've got to do is like, lift out the unelected House of Lords and bring in a, an elected chamber. Um, one of the things I will say, which might surprise you, is one of the things that you will find about the House of Lords, however difficult it is with the fact that they are unelected peers, one of the things is their ability to scrutinize. You have people in there, it's a kind of geritocracy in some ways. There are people in there who have been leading scientists, environmentalists, business people, sociologists, criminologists. I mean, if you look at the standard of debate in the House of Lords, you know, I, it, it makes you weep <laughs> compared to the standard in the House of Commons. It is exceptional. Not every debate, but many of them. You know, many of these people have, have been high court judges. Now, I understand it's a, you know, a class-based establishment system, but that expertise is something I wouldn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'd like to be able to keep some of that somehow in whatever new structure you had. I just don't necessarily think the Lords needs to be in London. And I don't think a second elected chamber needs to be there either. I think it, it could be elsewhere and that power could be disseminated out there in the country. We've had a question sent in from someone who's not here today, but this was from Leighton. And he has asked, a big area where Labour lost votes in the last election is to the right wing, anti-immigration, sometimes nationalist electorate, who have felt the need to lend their votes to other parties in order to secure single issue interests. How can Labour go about educating or refocusing these people's energies on more progressive policies, such as investment in public services, public ownership, and essentially replacing nationalism with nationalization. Yeah, and I, I don't think you can hide from the cultural issues. I mean, I think, I think the problem, one of the problems under the last administration under, under Jeremy was we, tr we basically applied an economistic approach to everything and we and we failed to engage in the in the cultural element it doesn't make a difference it was it was very became very clear that it didn't make a difference how much you shouted about the economic implications of brexit people were making this based on on, on cultural assumptions on, on cultural values that they held dear and the conservative party the brexiteers had tapped into something which i think the labor party has never really confronted which is i'm afraid to say the kind of 
um, for want of a better word, a reckoning with empire and everything that went before that. We've never, we've never really had that reckoning. Germany had to because it was defeated in the Second World War. You know, we went to war with, you know, the Second World War was basically one white supremacist empire, us, fighting another white supremacist racist empire, Nazi Germany. That's, that's the, the reality. And yes, we stopped the Holocaust. Yes, British and American soldiers liberated our uh, Belsen and Auschwitz. And that's fantastic. And it's, uh, I'm glad that that happened, as, as all of us are. But then, you know, those same American soldiers went back to the US and lynched black people, participated in Jim Crow, you know, worked and continue to work to ensure that, you know, brutality against the African-American community continues to this day. History is very complex. And, you know, here in the UK, you know, we came back in 1945, there were millions of people dying in Bengal in India, which was, which is part of the British Empire. And, you know, what was Churchill's response to that when we were exporting grain and food from India when there was a famine on was, well, they shouldn't breed like rabbits. You know, this, <laughs> I think we have to understand that there is a, an, there is still an, an unreconstructed element of, of the British social attitudes, which are, I'm afraid to say, for want of a better word, racist. And that's not saying that everyone is racist, and it's not saying that everyone that wanted Brexit was racist, but it's quite clear that structural racism uh, is, an, is, an, is, a, is an integral component of British society, and that within the Brexit debate, there was a racist component. And I think the, the problem for many colleagues in the Labour Party was that they could not accept that former Labour voters who were now voting on the issue of Brexit and joining the voting for the Conservative Party could be racist. I'm afraid to say that was the case. Uh, not all of them, but some of the attitudes. And the, the problem for Jeremy was, you know, he didn't, he didn't conform to a very old and established form of patriotism, and we can unpack that if we want, uh, of uh, a sense of national pride. These are issues which the Labour Party is going to have to confront. And we can't just offer more hospitals, more schools. We have to offer that. Yes, of course we do. And people who are secure are more likely to be progressive than regressive. That's, that's something I think we can understand. People who are insecure, who fear for the future, aren't going to be thinking about high lofty progressive ideals. That, you know, social science has shown that. So we do have to offer security, but we also have to, I think, confront what it is to be British in the 21st century and to under embrace what you would call the new working class, which is multi-ethnic, diverse, you know, different sexualities. How do we begin to build a narrative which is about this is what 21st century Britain should look like, these are its values, and embrace that difference, embrace what it is to be British in the 21st century, not what it is to be British in the 19th century or even the earlier 20th century. And I think that's something that the Labour Party is in a perfect position to be able to kind of lead the debate on and lead that national conversation. And the things with the Colston statue and Black Lives Matter are all, all aspects of that. You've talked a bit about what the Labour Party should do about our vision for the, the future of the country. And you've served as Shadow Minister for Sustainable Economics. In the past, you've consistently been one of the strongest advocates for Green New Deal in the Labour Party. Do you think that COVID-19 has actually strengthened the case for a Green New Deal, a new way of looking at environmentalism? I'd like to think it has, um, but I'm not gullible enough to think that there are, you know, there are you know, forces and people out there, interests out there, who are, 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 will see this as an opportunity, the downturn as an opportunity to push their own agendas forward. I mean, 
we're on a we're at a tipping point and a, a kind of turning point a tipping point and a turning point in politics and this could go either way i mean on the downside you know you've got a disease which kind of fundamentally causes great problems for the concept of mass transit public transport that is problematic given that we need to shift away from individual motor vehicles and forms of transport into collective forms of transport we're going to need to bike more we are, so i think you know, there are things about covid19 which are which are highly problematic for a sustainable future but there are other things which i think where it's opened up opportunities for us and for the public to think about how things could be different you know i'm someone who's pushing at the moment for a four-day week um this has long been a rallying call for socialists throughout history for for people to work fewer hours. It's not just about pay, it's also about having a better quality of life. And I think, you know, one of the things about talking about better forms of democracy, one of the hindrances of a better democracy is the time that people have to engage in their community, to engage in democratic life, to, to be able to enjoy uh, their families, their friends, their community. And I think if we are going to go into the 21st century consuming less, and this is a big challenge for the party and one that I can say now I'm not on the front bench, moving away, from continuous growth, which on a finite planet is just mad, then um, ultimately that means that we're going to have to have some fundamental shifts in how we look at the economy. And I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, we're falling back into a rut. The way out of this economic mess is to, is to see economic growth. Well, yes and no. It's what kind of growth? Is it sustainable growth? Is it anti-consumerism? This is the kind of an, an added layer which I sometimes feel is a bit missing from some of the front bench narrative. And, and, and I hope, be, and if anyone knows that I'm wrong on this, then you know, I don't listen to every single debate that takes place. But I just think that's something that just seems to be missing about this transformative nature. The, the economy needs to shift fundamentally. And that means reimagining how the economy works and who it works for. And uh, rather than simply banging on about the same old mantras of growth, uh, of GDP, you know, it, it's, it's just like time to change the record. And maybe now is the time to do that. You've mentioned a couple of times about racism within the UK, um, whether that's implicit or explicitly shown. Um, what do you think about Starmer offering to undertake implicit bias training? On the party withdrawing from Facebook adverts for a month, um, on every Labour Party uh, MP being um, instructed to take part in a, I think it's a 20 minute, 20, 30 minute online program of training on unconscious bias. The first thing I would say is, right, this is a recognition that there is a problem and therefore the party is responding quite rightly to um, the some of the issues raised by Black Lives Matter. So that's the good bit. Where it becomes slightly problematic is if these are seen as gimmicks and seen as, well, you know, we, we could do that and maybe we can have a kind of race pay audit and maybe a couple of other little things that we can throw in. And I, I'm not saying that's the attitude at all. But what I'm saying is that what black members and black voters and their allies want to see is also an acknowledgement of the structural nature of racism and what do i mean by structural i mean the underpinning it pervades it pervades literally every aspect and walk of life everything through to uh, how we frame patriotism to our sense of identity post-brexit and and, and it, it, it's you know look at, i mean think about the nhs the, you know the welfare state these things that you know, this 1945 moment that we hold up here and rightly so but it was you know in part you know the welfare state everything that we have as a modern western a society and economy 
has been um, has been enabled by all that went on in the past 400 years. That's problematic. If you understand that, then you begin to think, well, this is this is beginning to kind of raise questions about other things. If the party and if the leadership understand that and demonstrate that, then I think we we're, we're on the right footing. And so I think these things then slot in as a leadership that understands structural racism, that is doing something about it now, but also understands that this is going to have to permeate through everything we do and how we think. And that raises broader questions about foreign policy, about immigration policy, about the climate crisis, about how far and what leadership we're going to show on that. Because, you know, as things stand, one of the reasons I think why, you know, the Conservative Party doesn't seem that interested in the climate crisis is because it's disproportionately going to happen first to black and brown people in sub in the, in sub-Saharan uh, uh, in in the in the tropics uh, in the sub-Saharan Africa and the tropics. So you know, ultimately, we as a party are going to have to show that and demonstrate that we understand that and that we're prepared to challenge the structural issues and not just the kind of the other little bits as well, as important as they are. So I welcome them, but I think the leadership also has to show that it understands the depth and the structural nature of racism as well. Just wanted to say a big thank you for coming on today. Really appreciate it, and thank you for all your insight. I don't know about insight, but it's a pleasure, whingers, to uh, engage with you. Uh, and uh, there wasn't that much whinging going on. I probably did most of the whinging. Um, but no, it's, it's lovely. And it's, it, there were some really good questions there. And it, se it seems that we're all thinking about similar things at the moment um, as party members. We're all thinking about where next and how next. And I think, you know, if we're asking questions, that's a good starting place. And I think the last thing I will say is if we have a culture of acknowledging that there will be disagreements, um, but that, that we do have a kind of a collected vested interest in taking some steps together as far as we can, then, you know, that's as good a starting point as we can hope for and to, and to pursue into, uh, into the future. We're going to have to wrap up our discussion there. We want to say thank you to Clive for joining us and also a big thanks to our listeners who joined to ask us questions. If you fancy joining an episode, do get in touch. If you like this episode, you can follow us on Spotify, Left Wingers, and on Twitter, Left underscore Wingers. Be sure to turn on notifications to be the first to know when a new episode is released. You can also find the links to our Spotify and Twitter in the description. Stay safe and we'll see you soon.